and welcome to the Folio Podcast, where we talk to leaders, experts, and some very smart people in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. We explore topics around and including FF&E, specification, procurement, building information modeling, and pretty much anything that makes the process just better. My name is Ingrid Velasquez-Woodley, and this podcast is brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification, procurement, and data management software for the AEC industry. With Folio, you can manage your budgeting, specification, purchasing, inventory, and product data processes from end-to-end. Go to folio.com and schedule your demo today. That's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Folio Podcast. Today we are sitting down with architect Calvin Sao, who is half of Sao and Macau Architects. They are an award-winning New York firm working in various disciplines like urban planning, architecture, interior, and even product design. Now, just as a note, this interview was recorded in June 2019, roughly a month after the passing of renowned architect I.M. Pei. If you'll remember, Mr. Pei designed the glass and steel pyramid for the Louvre in Paris, among other notable projects like the JFK Library in Massachusetts and the Bank of China Tower in Hong Kong. Mr. Pei mentored Calvin, and I have to admit, at the time, it was one of the reasons I wanted to interview him. But the more I looked into Calvin's work, the more I wanted to just sit down with him and talk. For example, Calvin was part of a team that worked on restoring an ancient palace in the Forbidden City in China. How absolutely amazing is that? Anyway, I'll let Calvin tell his story. Hello, how are you? What have you been up to lately? You were traveling, I was told? Yeah, I, uh, I um, am a trustee uh, on the, the board of the American Academy in Rome because uh, about 11 or 12 years ago, I, would, I received this, I guess that's what we call it, fellowship to mm-hmm. study uh, some, a topic of my choice uh, in Rome, um, with Rome as kind of a place of, ins- of um, inspiration or, or research. And I was interested in post-World War II modern urban plans, you know, most, I think in, it, globally after the war, there was of course a surge of economic uh, development and, uh, but there's a dark side to it. I think, you know, there's a rampant suburbanization, also mm-hmm. growing poverty, government dealing with uh, housing that experiments that went wrong and uh, we certainly have them here uh, you know in 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 Chicago thing called Pruitt Igo we have a uh, um, housing you know afford um, low cost low income housing here yeah. and which are not successful and and same in Italy so we thought I thought it'd be very interesting to study a, a, you know what we call an eternal city that is Rome, and how that has been girdled by twentieth uh, century social issues, and how they, you know, try to solve it or fail to solve it. So that was like my my research topic, 
But uh, when I went there, we were housed in this beautiful campus on one, on one of the seven hills of Rome, filled with other scholars, musical uh, composers and writers and other architects and landscape architects and hist hist uh, historians. And it was fantastic. Anyway, I had a wonderful time. Apparently, they the, the director there took note that he thought I was a, a good contribution to that community. And, uh, and then four or five years later, they invited me to join their, their board. And so it's a long story to say that now <laughs> I get to go to Rome every year around this time uh, to reconnect with the new, new residents and fellows and, and, you know, brainstorm and jam about creative ideas and scholarship. So I spent about a week there and then went to it, Milan and Torino. That was great. And then I had to come back and go to Atlanta. <laughs> what was in Atlanta? To, uh, Atlanta is something similar. They, you know, Atlanta is growth developing and like all cities, the private sector of course goes after the profit center usually is high end. Mm -hmm. Not easy to 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 make a business out of providing for you know uh, affordable housing and so on. But uh, we we met through you know because I've been out talking about the importance of a balanced society, and that uh, we met up with a developer that really wanted to do that in Atlanta. So we went uh, down to meet him. And hopefully we'll get to do something with them. Very nice. Yeah. So why don't I start at the beginning? Um, okay. When did you realize that you wanted to be an architect? Well, <laughs> the funny thing is I never really thought of, I'm not one of those people who played with uh, my blocks as a child and I want to build things. Actually, as you know, I told you that I wanted to be in the theater and I studied dance well, accidentally because I was escorting my sister to ballet class and we got, I got two for one <laughs> classes from the teacher <laughs> because I was the only boy in my class. And that was like when I was seven years old. And, uh, and uh, I'm not bad babysitting my, my young sister, um, you know, while taking a dance class, but it really learned taught me how, to, uh, how important to understand your body is and the discipline of, of, of addressing your physicality. And then I went to the theater when it's important to look at the psyche, human psyche, which is you know, theater. I don't mean showbiz, I mean theater, play, mm -hmm. Greek tragedies, Roman comedies, wonderful plays, Shakespeare, and they're all really about over all these centuries addressing what human beings, our nature and our aspirations and our failures and our successes. And, and I just thought, wow, you know, this is really amazing. But I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to be a director. I didn't want to be a set designer. And I thought, well, what can I use this for? I really want to do something that's meaningful for our, our culture, human culture. And I realized that, well, a built environment certainly needs help. So I applied for architecture school um, at graduate level. 
I didn't study architecture as an undergraduate. Oh. Yeah. But I think sometimes it's really useful to, for I think one of the shortcomings of the architecture profession, that people fall in love with architecture too soon. Mm-hmm. They, can be, they can be very intellectual and very conceptual and they can be very artistic about building art objects, maybe. But, and there's, of course, there's art in artfulness in all discipline. But I think that for architecture, we're not art. So we're not making gigantic sculptures. We're, mm-hmm. we're building the, a, a container, a context, a place for, for us to use, to live in. And so it's from that standpoint that I, I want to be an architect. But the teacher says that I'm also very artistic, I don't know, that I could make nice, pretty things and beautiful objects. So that doesn't hurt, but that in a way is not my end goal. Of course, if you want to do something, you want to make it appealing. Right, you know? right. <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so I, um, I read in one of your interviews that you actually um, worked with IMK. Yes. Yeah. Um, where were you when you heard the news that he, he passed away and what were you thinking at the time? Well, you know, he lived in a rightful age of 102. I went to work for him in, in the early 80s. It's a long time ago. Uh, I was 20-something. I'd just gotten out of school. I just graduated. I worked a little bit for another architect named Richard Meyer. But I, I, I there wasn't, didn't fit, really, so I applied for a job at IMP. And... Uh, and luckily, after a year of doing, you know, usually intern kind of work, he discovered me in his office of a hundred and some people and took me under his wings. And one of the first projects he put me in charge of was, uh, he really threw me into a deep end. Somehow he believed I could get myself out of it. Was a, pro- a hotel, the first foreign design hotel in Beijing in the 80s. Wow. And it's called Fragrant Hill Hotel. Uh, it wasn't a successful hotel, but for, they didn't know how to manage it that back then. And it was actually owned by the government, so you can imagine service was not something they focused on. But I got a lot out of it. And it's about resuscitating Chinese architectural and urban idiom language rather than doing the international style modern building it was looking at how to take a modern sensibility not the modern style and apply it to the Chinese heritage and God I learned so much from that and I've kept in touch with him I was only there for about five years uh, maybe even less but we kept in touch and I see him I mean, I saw him all the time. And in fact, I was slated to have lunch with him the week he passed away. So it came as a shock because his son called and said, well, I'm afraid there's no lunch because he got very sick all of a sudden, caught a cold fever or something and passed away within three days. Oh, wow. But I think he's just like, it's time for him to go. You know, 102, yeah. it's like, I can't even imagine <laughs> 102. 
Um, so I, I was very close to him. And, you know, um, you saying that it was time for him to go, not just because he's 102, but because also he's given so much to the world with this work. I think so. I think, you know, one never knows how to deal with that final moment. Mm -hmm. Do we have choice? Do we have control? Or, or not? Um, but I definitely feel that emotionally, the last time I saw him was about uh, six weeks ago, six weeks before that. And I, and I see him pretty regularly, like every two or three months. And, uh, and I, I noticed it over the last, last few lunches that he was, the way he talked, the way he was revisiting his, his time. He certainly talked a lot about all the years that we had together. Um, and I feel like he's kind of passing his baton. Uh, I definitely saw his telling me. I'm sorry, just a little emotional. Um, to be authentic, never give up, and stay true to your aspirations. And he said that uh, he always forget those moments when he didn't. And he said that's the most important lesson to learn. It's not worth it, or whatever it is to compromise. However, he says, it doesn't mean you dig your heels in. He says, well, you just charm the bejesus out of people. But that's, I'm paraphrasing. It's <laughs> <laughs> your power of persuasion. He said, you have to learn to read people, to understand and make and listen to them and respond to them. Never talk down to them, never, never, Feel a distance. Always be just be as empathetic as you can, and that's how he got through, say, the Louvre, which was such a mess politically. You know, you've got the French people, you've got racism going on, uh, you've got politics, and he prevailed and he created something against everyone's protest of project that ultimately everyone embraced. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. I agree. He must have been very proud when he heard, when he heard that you were working on um, that restoration project in the Forbidden City. He was, he was. He was a great guide. He said, that's something I would do if I were your age. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I'm doing and dedicating this project to you, Mr. Pei. No, I thought I am, but uh, he's certainly totally unpretentious. There's no generation thing. I mean, he's what, like 40 years, my senior or something? I don't know. Um, but he, we never felt that distance, you know, that gap. Um, and I'm very close with his, his sons because we're all about the same age. So they jokingly said that I'm their fourth son or something. He had three sons. Um, That's very sweet. So that, that's my story with Diane Pei. Let's see. Um, well, 
you actually one of your questions was what was the last thing one last thing you remember when when I say this you know I am I I, I think uh, I I want to try to you know pursue my own path and he said I think it's time for you to to do that I think he said I, you know he said well I haven't really taught you anything which is not true <laughs> was it just being falsely modest but he said, but I will give you one very important advice that I never, again, I've never told you. He says, when you go, there are a lot of sparkly, shiny projects, and they look great. He says, that's not the most important thing. Choose your partners. Choose your client. Your client, it, says, it sounds ridiculous. How do you choose your clients? He says, yeah, no, you do choose your clients. He says, life is not long. He says, you know, with architects, you can't do well, first of all, he says, don't take everything that comes along. It's not worth it. Pick up, take the things you really feel you can contribute. And also, he said, and the best way to, to succeed is when you, are, you and your client are on the same page. If you're not on the same page, it doesn't work. So you've got to choose your client as much as they choose you. And don't choose because the project is sexy or the project is because if the project comes with it with an owner that is not on you know in sync with you or you're not in sync with them it won't come out right so that was a very important advice that he gave me and is that one of the reasons that you your firm only takes one or two projects a year well we chose one thing when i I am paying partners ultimately had, had one issue, which is that he took on quite a few partners. And ultimately, it was called I am paying partners, is the partners don't like the idea that they're anonymous all these years. Like, why am I name not on the door? So eventually, in the 90s, they kind of parted ways and becomes paid, Cobb, and freed. And I am actually used that opportunity to so called retire from that company. But he didn't retire from his work because he then joined forces with his sons who started a new company called Pay Partnership. And he continued to work with Pay with that uh, post uh, blue. And, uh, and so that's another lesson that he didn't advise me, but I watched and I said, you know, that was not, that was kind of painful. And, uh, and they grew because he felt that they needed to have a size. And so the office at some point grew. When I joined, it was about 100 people. But by the time I left, it was 300 people. And I felt that, that something was lost. And I think even I am himself felt something has changed. And that's why he was fine leaving that company and starting all over again with his son. And it's much smaller. <laughs> office where he can do things well and that's so all he didn't tell me that but you know since i talked to him all the time over these years i observed and i think that's really what we should do so my partner i decided that we don't take on any more that we can't personally be in charge of and while it's not that we're so egotistical that we want everything micromanage everybody but I think, well, if your name's on a door, why are you doing it in the first place? It's, you know, if you want to make money, there are many other businesses you can go where you can make a lot more money. And managing 
artistic and creative people are very difficult and you can't use them like a factory. And if you're very big, you, you can have a personal rapport with your staff. So we just prefer to be no more than 30 people where everybody is somebody in the office. There's no one like, who, who are you again? You know, it's like, I remember when the office was 300 people, Ayn Pei himself didn't even know some of the people who'd been working there for several years. Whereas when I was there, he picked me out because with it, even with a hundred people, because there are like four partners, basically like a hundred people divided by four. It's like basically he was really just working with 25 people. And so, so we decided that 25 to 30 people would be the right thing for two partners. And, uh, and that's the size. And therefore that's all we can do, you know, like some, a couple of projects a year. Not a great business model, by the way, but but but, it's a not. but good professional model. But uh, you know, of course, I'm not saying that I I don't like to creature comforts, but you know, I feel like if my life has to be balanced between financial stability and other satisfactions, which is a job well done. You feel like you matter to the world somehow in your little way and to be able to pay my bills <laughs> i don't need to you know be a millionaire or billionaire or whatever other things so um that would be a good um topic to digress into right now is that um you you've been pursuing this way of doing things and that you've been selective with your projects and you want to make sure that everything is, um, like you said, it, it's, you are personally responsible for it. It's not that you're micromanaging everyone, but you know, you're making sure that it's something you're going to be proud of. And I mean, it, it kind of seems like it's paid off for you. Do you think? I, I think so. I mean, I, uh, there, I don't think I have any regrets. Uh, I would like to further improve and make things better and better still. Because you learn on the, on the job every time. And the wonderful thing about life is, yeah, it looks like it's a cycle and it seems to be, some things are familiar. It's the French say, plus ça change, plus la même chose. I, I think, yeah, it's the même chose. It's a, same, but it never comes back the same. It's just like fashion. You know? Oh, white pants. But this time the white pants with a little cup on it. You know, like, oh, now we're wearing like, you know, retro 80s, but it's not really the 80s because it's just a reference. So I think you can always find something to improve on, to make it relevant to our time right now. And so you build on that experience, but you never go, oh, yeah, it's the same old thing. No, it's never the same old and I'm always really excited about the next thing. Even it seemed like, oh, you know, is it familiar territory? Look for the unfamiliar within the familiar. Mm. And also I think now more and more, as we became, become more experienced, maybe wiser, uh, we've always used our, our office as a kind of a postgraduate learning center. Um, our, our team's education, learning, uh, 
is, you know, is something very important to us. And now that we know more, I think we have more to share with our, with our team, more insights, more wisdom. Um, and, uh, and we're very proud of one thing in our studio, which is over these years, we've kind of nurtured many talents who then, like me, leaving pay, left our office and went on to having shine, really wonderful careers. Very good. And that's a mission that we continue to have, whether we are teaching at a university or just teaching or not teaching, sharing, sharing, exchanging with, with other people. You think that's um, one way that you can leave your mark on the world? Um, I think I can't think about leaving marks. I think I can only think about making connections and maybe if I make the, more connections with people, we can, I can, uh, we can sustain a culture that I believe in beyond, beyond me, beyond mm -hmm. my partner, you know, like pass it on, so to speak. <laughs> so less about me, like, oh, this is, but more about taking whatever energies I, I lived and, and, and passing it on to a relay, relay it to other people. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, okay. it, did. it did make I'm sense. I'm like talking about about <laughs> <laughs> <I> being this. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, so I do um, want to go back to that project in the Forbidden City. Um, that's fascinating. Um, I, I, I've seen a few documentaries about um, restorations um, in that area. Uh, I forgot. It, there was one emperor and um, basically it was his retirement palace that they restored. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, how did you come by the project and, you know, who did they, did the government, you know, approach you and say, hey, would you be interested in doing this? I, I think the Chinese government's too busy calling to get that fine grain, but uh, the government was always looking for, for resources, right? So they were like marketing out to wealthy people, like, oh, could you donate something? you know, in order for me to, so then I'll give you a little, you know, crumb in the business or something. I don't know, I don't try, I'm not going to go in there. China is complicated. Uh, Chinese government is very complicated. Um, the gist of it is that somehow rather, they're uh, a Chinese American slash Hong Kong tycoon uh, started a nonprofit group called China Heritage Fund. And he, he has a mass donation. And the mission was to help China rebuild itself, its own heritage, right? So China. And how he, this person and their group um, was able to reach out to the, the Palace Museum because this is actually a very important piece and quite notable, which is the Forbidden City, the palace, is seen culturally as a microcosm of China as a whole. It's just 
not superstition, but mythology. And this palace was burned down mysteriously at the turn of the 20th century uh, under very suspicious and dark circumstances. Basically what happened was that it was the retreat for, uh, um, um, well, my mind's like that, uh, for the emperor, I don't know why I get my names. And, uh, I don't think it's Puyi, but the, the one before that. Jiaxing, some, anyway, I have to let it go. And he had a lot of treasures and, his, and apparently his underlings were pilferaging, stealing from him. And he kind of was aware of that. So he wanted to do an audit of his holdings, his, his treasures. And I think those people who were stealing realized that it was like their, their gig is up. So they stole some things and he burned the building down. So then there was no evidence what was stolen. And so there was only thing that was left was a, was a foundation and, and a lot of beautiful paintings depicting the building. There are not other documentaries. There are no plans, construction plans. So we had to piece it together. And anyway, so the Chinese commonly believe that when the Forbidden City is whole again, China will be whole again, whole and powerful. So, so it's a symbol. And it's a very popular notion. So of course, the first thing this China Heritage Fund reached out to the government and says, hey, of all the heritage pieces that you think are the most important to restore, rebuild, whatever, would be this piece. And the Chinese government says, you're right, let's do it. So that was under the governance of the museum, right? And the museum was just wanted, like, was so enthusiastic, wanted to just build it. And they were actually our contribution. Oh, so how do we get involved in this? <laughs> it's called me being like friendly and nosy and love to party, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, since the Beijing, when I was working for IMP and I did this, Hotel. This hotel didn't succeed, but it did give IMP a very high rep, uh, um, reputation in China. And then he got a second commission, which I also worked on, which is the Hong Kong, Hong Kong's Bank of China building. I don't know whether you know, it's it's a tower. And and I worked on that, and then of course then I followed suit to go. And, and worked, uh, went to Hong Kong quite often for that job. And this was a mid to late 80s. Hong Kong was fun. And, <laughs> and I was working by day and, and partying by night, I guess. <laughs> See, parties. Those parties are not, you know, productive. I'm not talking about networking. I'm not talking about rail party. And, <laughs> and, and you know, work hard, you gotta relax. And we, I met some people at one of these, and Hong Kong's are like, like, I think it's like wall-to-wall -wall network mechanism. People are just really interested in meeting, meeting people and 
passing business card. So even in this like club, someone we were talking and it was, oh, you work for Iron Pay. And you build this building in China, it was the first building, foreign built building in China. And how did you do that? And you know, and that building literally we started a kiln to to make these tiles some for the roof and, and all that. So I was telling regaling people with the, my adventures in China working there and uh and turn out one of them was uh, a woman who was uh, the director of the china heritage fund wow meanwhile it turned out that she knows someone who knows someone who knows my sister but never mind <laughs> uh so so when they you know so that combined the fact that she's a friend of a friend of a friend of my sister in hong kong it all like yeah well let's get calvin to do this project so they they gave the commission to me and and it's true i was qualified because i did with the pay project in china uh work with local builders work with craftspeople and the first thing we did with my with zach that we decided that we need to recommend to 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 the authorities that we need to build it correctly which is exactly how it's built that don't use modern technology and and use this as an opportunity to actually nurture and resuscitate old crafts craftsmanship so no nails you know no waterproofing that you know no no concrete you know everything was done authentically so even though it's wow. a reconstruction it's not disneyland Right, we didn't just do a facsimile of it. We literally re raised it from its ashes as if you know it was built 300 years ago. Very good. Uh, and took six years, and it was only like 4,000 or 5,000 square feet, so it's not very big. Mm -hmm. But it has a lot of grounds too, gardens and so on. Um. So. You um you said Hong Kong Bank of China. Did you mean Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank of China? No, Hong Kong and Shanghai HSBC yeah. is Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. That's the uh, British bank. I mean, that's the the British the 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 Taipan type of bank, right? That's a, uh and HSBC is still around. This is this is a, a B B O C I think Bank of Bank of Bank of China. Yeah. I wonder if we're talking about the same um, project in the Forbidden City. Did was there a documentary about that project? Um, yeah, actually, since then, there yeah, there was a documentary about that project, but I don't know which documentary you saw because there's also another documentary by the World Heritage uh, World World Monument Fund. They started, I think so. That sounds familiar. And that one is next door. We we were the first one, but ours is a complete rebuild. Theirs is a restoration. Oh, so it might have been theirs that I saw because um, I saw this um, this part where they were um, peeling off paper from the from the ceiling. You had to be so careful with it. That is the 
that is the World Monument Fund. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that building was on another side. It was not burned down. It was there, but it was totally decrepit. Right. We went to see it too, but um, World Monument Fund also wanted to do something, and they they did that uh, with um, the director. Then was the another Chinese American guy named Henry Ng. Henry Ng. He's she's not there anymore, but uh, um, that was a that was a very interesting project too. But that that one, and they also followed suit. I think anyone in preservation restoration had the same mindset as we do, which is you know you should do it correctly. Right, right. Yeah, um, they found all these artisans that um, that did that did things through a traditional way. So. Well, when we started, I, would, I, mean, I don't want to brag, but they, they benefited from us because when we did that project, which is about three years, three or four years before theirs started, our notion is that we need to build up a school and train because all the existing craft people were getting old. They were like in their 70s. And so we, we and this is where the government comes in well because they can recruit young people to teach them the craft and uh, and uh, so we also uh, started a kiln to do the glazed tiles that uh, the imperial glazed tiles obviously no one's making them wasn't no one was making them then and we had to re you know recreate them the golden one you know the kind of not gold but you know it's a yellow yeah, there's a type of yellow that's only for yeah. royalty. And uh, and then, of course, technologies like how do they waterproof buildings, how do they do walls, it's really crazy. <laughs> it's very green in a way, because instead of like chemical stuff, they use pig's blood mixed with lime powder and chalk and sand and create a god-awful stinking blob of stuff that you use to plaster onto the walls. And if it dries, sure enough, it is rock hard and impenetrable. But when it was curing, it was, it stunk to God. <laughs> <laughs> It was fun. It was just an amazing adventure. But uh, and then of course, who would ever get experiences like that? And so, so all that stuff we kind of resuscitated. By the time the World Monument Fund project came along, you know, they it had built up a head of steam, and they were able to. And of course, it's important because if we if other people don't adopt these technologies then you know there'd be no business so i'm glad they did it and use and then we're able to continue with growing the teams of uh craft people i remember there was a wall that was embroidered with pearls in that site real sea pearls on these panels not only like intricate silk embroidery which I believe they went to Hangzhou to Hangzhou to to and they do have still have that craft in those 
really expensive. But also, they incorporated real pearls. <laughs> wow. It was really, it's kind of decadent. You think about the emperors, they were like, <laughs> they're the 1%, they're this point, point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um how did um how did Sao and Macau start when what ha uh, what was happening at the time that you were like thinking that uh you know it's time for me to put together my own firm do my own thing what was it like at the beginning and how different is it now from back then um, I don't know how is it different from now. I think now there are more platforms for young people to start. You know, with, I think the PR machine is, you know, the promotion machine mechanisms are more available to, and also back then it, you're not supposed to promote yourself. It's was still very much the gentleman's profession. So you're, you cannot advertise, you cannot, the only thing you can do is when you have a project, you can get it published and give a lecture. <laughs> but now you can Instagram it, Facebook it, <laughs> you know, you can do, you, you know, you, you can do fictitious projects and, and, and post it. And so there's more platform to get yourself out there. Um, I think when I was right to leave, because first of all, um, I was naive. <laughs> I was, uh, and sometimes maybe you just have to be kind of clueless to jump in and swim. Uh, we, I'd worked there for five years. See, at the time when you're younger, five years seems like an eternity. You know, um, well, you're young, so I don't know, maybe it is an eternity, <laughs> but, uh, and I was, uh, I was eager and, and I felt that, okay, I've built in China, I've built around, you know, foreign. I, we also did a project for I am here in, in the U.S. and Virginia. So I thought I should really try. And I was becoming more, uh, both my partner and I are, you know, at that time there was a huge sea change in terms of attitude about how, what architecture is about. And so we just want to try our own thing. And, and also at the same time, I, my grandfather was not feeling, was ill and eventually passed away. I was very close to him. So I took a sabbatical for a year to just take care of my grandfather. And it kind of broke the rhythm for me in terms of work. And, and I felt like, I, I, felt, I don't feel like going back to work. And during that time, my grandfather has like repatriated to Hong Kong. He was living in California, uh, which is where I grew up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're from Shanghai. And, uh, you know, when you get old, the funniest thing is even I am Pei was in the last years kept saying, I want to go back to Hong Kong. I said, but I am, you were never in Hong Kong. You know, I mean, he was not from Hong Kong, but he knew Hong Kong well. 
Yeah. Something about your home, your, your ethnic origins or something. My grandfather wants to die closer to home. So he moved to Hong Kong and I had to go to Hong Kong. And I, and the, and actually I was wrapping up in Hong Kong on that project I told you for pay, uh, the Bank of China building. And, my, and coincidentally, my grandfather also moved to Hong Kong. So I saw a lot of him. And the, the more I saw of him, I, I really realized that I want to spend more time before he passes. So, so I stayed behind. So I am a Buddhist. Uh, I, you know, we finished the building. I just need the time off. I can, can I take some time off. And then thought about it. Meanwhile, when I was doing that, um, uh, my father, who's actually a, an industrialist, I guess what you call him, and uh, was invited to Singapore to by the government there to imagine what Singapore should do. You know, um, Singapore, if you look at now crazy rich Asian and all that, you think Singapore is always gleaming and new and futuristic, but but actually 25, 30 years ago, it was actually uh, very stagnant and there was no industry. It was a, it was a, supposedly a service economy, but there's not much other than banking, there wasn't much. And, and so he, the Lee Prime Minister, Lee Kuan Yew, I think, mm-hmm. um, invited a bunch of you know, uh, industrialists and entrepreneurs. So to brainstorm with him. Uh, and my, my father said, you want to have a break vacation? Do you want to come with me to uh, Singapore? And I go, yeah. <laughs> so I went with him and I attended some cocktails and I talked to some people at the cocktail and some guy, I don't remember who, was saying, young man, I hear you work for Iron Pay. We have buildings by Iron Pay. I thought, yeah, I know, I know. You know Iron Pay did a lot of buildings. What do you think, you know, will jumpstart our economy? I'm like, I'm an architect. I don't know. And so, but I didn't say that. So I said, well, I am an architect. I think that, you know, one area is real estate development. I said, in Hong Kong, where I'm just hanging out right now, you know, the big economy is real estate, but you know, you do know to have real estate, you have to just, you have to build up some desirability for real estate and, 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 and so on. So maybe you should have, and back in the, right then in Hong Kong was building its first international com- convention center and conferencing center. I said, well, why don't you make Singapore an, an, another hub, you know, conference convention hub to bring people through your tourism is, you know, nobody stays more than a day or two in Singapore. There's nothing to do. You can extend their stay, make something to do. Uh, I was just talking on the top of my head. I don't know what got into me. Maybe it was the cocktail. Anyway, so somehow that work got back to some important people. And they talk, reached out to my father, who then reached out to me and says, well, they want to hear more. Uh, about what you had in mind. So, okay. Well, the short of it is that they, I stayed on for a week and I looked at sites and kind of looked at the urban plan of the city and I 
talked about like maybe you should connect this road to that road and make a hub and you know very kind of theoretical idealistic stuff but give it to Singapore when they when they hear a good an idea and they think it's good they they do it wow <laughs> so they go oh okay so um orchard road kind of dies off east coast highway doesn't feed into anything. It just kind of goes into town and doesn't lead you anywhere. And you think you should find a way to connect those two roads to create a hub? I go, yeah. Anyway, so one thing led to the next, we, we came up with a concept, a master plan on literally on the piece of paper. And they said, well, the next thing you know, that then the government decided that through the, you know, their, their agencies to do it. RFP for development. And uh, and they said, well, you know, you're you know, an IMPA uh, acolyte. Maybe, do you think you'd talk IM into doing this? And I said, well, I can try. So I went and talked to IMPA. And he said, oh, I really don't want to go to Singapore. The place is too hot. I don't like them. And it's too far away. Whatever. He goes, I'll tell you what. You just resign. What do you do? Are you going to start a new firm? And I said, um, I could. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it, and I was like, oh God, he's gonna like think I'm an asshole. You know, he goes, fine, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you have to take your next step. You, you, you know, you took a sabbatical, then you said you're gonna leave and you don't know what you're doing. I'll tell you what, start a firm. You could be our associate architect or something, collaborate. But you do all the work and you all the travel, okay? And and I said, okay. So we made that offer. And we, I showed him the master plan that I came up with. He goes, well, you know, and he gave him some pointers. And I said, I have no staff. He goes, well, you use my office. So basically we created that project with my old office, right? His his office. And then submitted it and got the job. And I and Pego like, okay, well, wrote a letter to to the government says, my work is done here. This young man, he worked in our office for a long time. He's perfectly capable of doing this. Let him do it. Oh, I'm forever grateful to this guy. Not only did he give me training, he gave me a gift to jumpstart our career. Is that amazing? Uh-huh. That is amazing. So, wow. on the other hand, it was a thing really big to swallow. It was 24 acres, you know? <laughs> and like, okay, here's a plan. It looks nice. How are we to build it? Well, we found, then we found a local architect to partner up 
because you know you need to know your local ordinances, your codes, and this and that, and a huge team to produce. I think thousands and thousands of documents, right? So, so we immediately went from like no one to forty people in a year. Wow. Uh, Twenty, ten people in New York. And thirty people in Singapore. My partner literally moved to Singapore for like seven years, and I kind of, you know, started our own our our core home front here. And we took some. Then with that, we're kind of financially secure, and we were able to start our pick and choose approach to projects. And we, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, start to explore different things to do and we did some homes we did a lot of retail we did some schools we got an office building you know and then just build ourselves up so it's it's a kind of fairy tale story really so i would say it's hard to say to other people this is how you start it because i i'm i you know that's just too unique a story but i'm so grateful that 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 an employer could care that much for you that we want to be as good an employer as we can and we noticed that when people graduate from school including ourselves we don't really have very much professional knowledge and we just bungle through we bungle through and we fall down we fell down many times and picked ourselves up so it's not happily ever after it was like it was a fairy tale beginning and then it was like a rocky road you know all yeah. uh and 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 we want to you know share that the journey and the roadmap for future people you know um so what was it like back then managing thousands of documents i mean i imagine these are all actual physical paper right mm-hmm. how do you keep everything straight well i mean well first you have as i said 40 people and they've divided not you know this person the project manager and this division you're taking care of the outside you're taking up the structure you take care of client management well i take care of my partner i take care of the client management and uh and you know both he and I had been working for big firms, you know, successful firms like Iron Pay, and he was with uh, a firm called Rafael Vignoli, um, which is a well-known New York architecture firm. So, so actually running a big job like that is not something unfamiliar to us. It's just that we were running it for other people, for our bosses. You know, now we are our own boss, and we have to manage our people to get from them what my our bosses got from us. And the first time around being an employer is on and a, and a boss to 40 people was kind of a learning curve. You know, it's a lot for lots of people. And that's why we never want to be that big again. We just want to be, you know, like 20 people. Training people is so much more pleasant. <laughs> do you um do you still do a lot of specifications yourself? Mm, yeah. Uh, well, what kind of specification are you talking about? 
Um, well, I mean, what kind of specification do you still do? Well, I mean, certain specifications are technical specifications, how you want to get things built and how mm -hmm. the details you want to create. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like, how do you want the wall painted? Like, I want to paint it once, sand it, speckle it, sand it, paint it, paint it three times and with a brush, not a roller. You know, that's, a, that's kind of specs, technical specification. Whereas other people may spec, Benjamin Moore, you know, prime, paint, you know. And of course you have to uh, do the right specification for the right budget. You know, if it's a palace, you can, you can literally lick your walls to, to smoothness. <laughs> and if you're doing affordable housing, you just say bare wall, <laughs> you know, like you paint it yourself, <laughs> right? Uh, because that's, you know, unfortunately that's how it works. Uh, other specifications, learning new technology, right? How things are built, and uh, and there's these days it's exploding how things can be built, you know, with the technology like 3D printing and. Uh, uh, what sort of tools do you use on an everyday basis? I am very old school, a pencil and mm -hmm. piece of paper, but our the the tools the tools are. It's very annoying right now and professionally because every five years or so or less, there's new technology that makes old technology obsolete. So you have to relearn it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the and the and the way the the way you navigate the technology is different. So you're always time you're always learning something new. So you know it used to be AutoCAD, AutoCAD, and Shimada, also the fancy name. And now the technology that we use to do our drafting and drawing is called Revit. Uh, and, uh, and, and also you have to be at par with everyone else. So it's not like you can choose to stay one way or another because you need to communicate to other offices, to other construction. So you all have to kind of up the game constantly. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to send people to learn new technology new new methodologies all the time which has nothing to do with creativity unfortunately yeah it's learning how it's like okay you learn how to do watercolor but now you're going to do oil painting or now you have to do chinese ink wash and you've got to start all over again practice but um but i offer myself a luxury which is i'm thinking i'm going to give you my ideas my ideas can be a piece of a drawn on the pen with a pencil, a piece of paper. Now, I'll I'll let our young team transcribe it into web uh, technology did. Mm -hmm. Because I think I think I think faster than actually technology can. It's kind of tedious. Clip, cut, change, rotate, and then by the time you get to where you are, no matter how fast you are, you've forgotten what you used. But if you say like, I mean this, you know, and you just like do this, it's so fast. I mean, it's not accurate, but it's, you manage to communicate an idea within seconds. Yes, the entire idea is right there, even though. Right, that's why people so joke about nap, design on a napkin, because really a lot of ideas are on paper napkins or whatever you have around you. And it should be as immediate as that still. That's still, I would say most of my colleagues still feel strongly that 
the genesis of anything comes from taking an idea, what's in your head and transcribing something very quickly like that. Of course, now I also have my iPad so I can do my sketches in that. And then you push send. And, you know, so I, I lie, it's not just a pencil, but something with my finger. Close <laughs> <laughs> enough. You know, and a tablet. So, so um, for uh, our last words, let's say, um, what advice do you have for architects who just graduated and, um, you know, architects that are thinking of starting their own firms? How, you know, it's, it's like, it's one thing to be really good at what you do, but how do you, how do you actually sustain your firm for like, for as long as you've been doing it? I think the one thing is always lacking in architecture is a connection to human connections. And I can understand, you know, what we do is so thought and labor intensive that most people sequester themselves into their own world and come up with things. But as I said earlier, at the end of the day, people look to architecture as a means to a better life, whatever that better life means to that person. No one's buying, a, buying into a piece of architecture as just a thing, you know, it's like, you know, oh, it's gorgeous. It has to work. And how does it work, no matter how beautiful it is or how sexy it is, is it how people use it? And does it dovetail? That means that we've really got to know what makes people tick and what people want and, and have patience with hearing people out, your client, your end user, so that make your buildings relevant. I'm sure there are a lot of talented people, architects out there, young architects who can come up with some really cool architecture but to me, architecture does not come alive unless it's populated. You know, there's historically kind of a ridiculousness where if you look at an architecture magazine, the buildings are usually photographed with no one around. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. <laughs> but they want you to look at the building for the building. And I said, no. You look at the building to see how successful it, so successful it is to contain activities, to have content. Um, and that means vibrancy. So I would say to architects out there starting out, don't forget that architecture is not sculpture. Architecture is not only a temple. Architecture is the engine from, you know, that helps push human culture forward. Okay, it's, it's not static and it has to be interactive. And I also think that they need to expand their mind beyond the confines of their own discipline. Live a life, go out. Party. Party. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? One thing that I always do, you say, well, how do you 
find your inspiration is be in the world. Whether I go into nature and take a walk or go into the city and take the subway or go into a party and party hard and see what other people are doing, you know you're not alone and you are part of a big energy ball that's called humanity. And what we do is to make the platform or the context from which people can party or live or work, raise a family. And that's important. I think there's too much a trend for architects to just make static objects. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so, so, so much. This has been, again, um, I'm super thankful that you found time to spend with us today, but I've learned so much today and I'm super grateful for that. Well, I'm super grateful that you asked me to <laughs> go on and on about things because every time I talk to people, I learn something about myself and I learn a lot about you and I learn to reach out and, and take in and, you know, and I, I appreciate all the questions you asked me because it made me think about things that I really have not thought about for a while. Um, it engages me, so thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification, procurement, and data management software for the AEC industry. With Folio, you can manage your budgeting, specification, purchasing, inventory, and product data processes from end-to-end. Go to foholio.com and ask us for a free demo.